Glad you guys are here today. We're going to be continuing our study in Colossians. If you guys want to go ahead and grab your Bibles, we'll be uh, finishing out chapter 3 of Colossians today. Yes, we are on the downhill of Colossians. It's been, it's been, we've been in this book a minute, and it's just kind of, I don't know, it's just something about being this close to the end of it that's like, oh man, I like it. Uh, yeah, we're just going to get to the end. And we're just going to loop around and do all Colossians again. Is that good with everyone? Uh, <laughs> so we're in Colossians chapter 3 today. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to grab one of our house Bibles. They're on the end of each row. You can just give someone a dirty look and they'll hand you one. Um, if you are here today and you don't have a Bible, I would, uh, we just, man, we really believe in the importance of access to God's Word. And so we would encourage you to just take one of those home, or even better yet, uh, talk to one of our pastors and we'll buy you one that's in better shape. Those have been hauled in and out of a trailer a few too many times to really make for a good like living room Bible. Uh, but I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to jump into our text. Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for how you love us. Thank you for your kindness to us, God. Um, man, it is just so sweet to be with you, to hear from you. God, this morning as we dig into your word and we try to parse apart some, some difficult words, we ask that you would just be our interpreter and our discipler and our pastor today. Holy Spirit, illuminate your text. Interpret it on our behalf. Convict us um, where we need to be convicted. Remind us where we have forgotten and teach us new and clearer truth of who you are. Jesus, we know that you delight you delight to proclaim your gospel to your bride. So God, this morning, do that work. Woo us to you. We trust you for this, so we pray it boldly in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So Colossians, in chapter 3, starting in verse 18, we read this. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And this is the word of the Lord. What a text, huh? There's a lot going on. Before we get into this, let me get us back into the headspace of what's going on here. Remember, this letter, Colossians, was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a city called Colossae in the first century. And the short version of the story is that this 
church had fallen into heresy, had fallen out of sound teaching, and their pastor, a guy named Epaphras, had gone to Paul and said, please implore, teach, convict, rebuke, whatever you need to, to help get my church back on track of the one true teaching of the gospel. And so this letter, Colossians, is the fruit of that. Paul has written this letter to this church that he's never visited, that he didn't start, that he doesn't really know anyone except this guy, Epaphras, who's come to visit him, and he's challenging them to return to the true gospel. And so over the course of this letter, he lays out his argument beautifully. He spends the weight of the text of the letter proclaiming the excellency and sufficiency of Christ. Colossians is the principal example of deep New Testament Christology. Who is Christ? What is his person? What is his work? The chapter one of Colossians has the most beautifully articulated Christology in the whole of the New Testament. Paul proclaims boldly and loudly, Jesus's work on the cross is sufficient and complete. He has accomplished everything necessary for life and godliness and eternity for the believer. There is nothing that needs to be added to him and his teaching and his person. And so he gets into the main argument of the letter, which is this, you have received Christ, so walk in him. Don't do anything else. And then as he goes through chapter two, he picks apart the, t- the false teaching that this church has grabbed a hold of. They've grabbed a hold of this syncretistic heresy where they've started to take aspects of Judaism and Roman paganism and mix them into Christianity to kind of make their own like all-you-can-eat buffet version of religion. And Paul just says, that's, that's dumb. That's foolish. Throw that stuff aside. It does nothing for your soul. Adding stuff to Christ is like adding a Twinkie onto your plate at a fine restaurant. You don't need it. It's a waste. Go to what you have. Go to Christ. He is sufficient. And then in chapter 3, he begins to really flesh out what it means to walk in Christ. What does it mean to live out this finished and complete work of Jesus on the cross? And so he starts by spelling out the call of all Christians to salvation and to holiness. And he gives this image, we've talked about this, right, of the put off and the put on, of take off your old dirty clothes of flesh and sin and death. They are unbecoming of you now. You are in Christ, so put on your new clean tunic of holiness. Take off your sin, put on holiness through Christ. He has made this possible for you. And then he transitions and he starts talking. He goes from uh, personal holiness to communal holiness. And he talks about holiness in the life of the church, right? That, That these commands for the individual believer to allow their life to become more and more like the person and work of Jesus actually transcends and connects to our communal life together. And we're to come together in confession and love and service and holiness and celebrate the word and worship together. And he spells out all these things in power and he kind of brings it together in verse 17 where he basically just says, listen, whatever the heck you do, anything, do it unto God, do it unto the Lord. And then we get into our text. And what happens in our text is that Paul moves 
He continues the same thought, this call to holiness, what it means to walk in Christ as you've received him. He's shown how it involves a call to personal holiness. He's shown how it involves a call to communal church holiness. And now he's describing how this call to holiness, this, this walking in Christ, speaks into the family and work structures. That it, that it spreads out into the rest of your life. Now, there are a couple big things we got to talk about before we can really flesh out this text. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk us through just a couple things. But the first thing is this. Before we talk about this, I want to make sure we're all on the same page in terms of our methodology of biblical interpretation. I know you're like, sweet, that's totally why I got up early this, this morning was to hear you talk about your biblical interpretation methodology. But it's actually important. It, it, this is something we need to talk about for a minute. So in exegetical, or, or when, when we're exegeting scripture or in systematic theology, there is this system of biblical interpretation that's pretty standard uh, that, that we hold to and use at Red Tree. It's sometimes called the three-pillar method or the three-island method of biblical interpretation. It's, it's a very just basic structure that's used for engaging the text on its own terms, and it, and it comes in three steps. You first look at what you, you do your best to determine what was the original author's original intent to the original audience. You, you, you follow what I'm saying with that? What was the original meaning of this text, right? Colossians is a letter written a couple thousand years ago in a different language to a local church that was pretty, pretty different from ours. A lot of similarities, but also very different than ours, right? And so you try and find the original meaning, the original author's original meaning to the original audience, and then you, you take a step back. So that's pillar one. You take a step back and you determine what is the universal gospel or theological truth that was being proclaimed in that context. So in, the, in step one, you microscope in on the text. You're getting into language and history and culture and context and all those things. And in step two, you zoom out really far and you say, what is the overarching theological or gospel truth that's being taught here? And in step three, you zoom back in and you contextualize that truth to your context. Does that make sense? We do this all the time. All the time. This is most sermons you hear, even if we don't use this language, this tends to be how we engage Scripture. Now, sometimes it's so simple that you don't need to actually name this process, right? You can go and you can read uh, Exodus 20:16, and it says not to bear false witness. And so you can look at that and go, oh, okay. So the, the, the original meaning there was in this, in this context of this new nation being formed, they, they, they have to trust each other, right? So they shouldn't be lying when they're under oath, and they shouldn't be lying to each other in general. That's something that's going to be destructive. And so you pull that back and you go, oh, well, well theologically, we can say that, that God, God is true, <laughs> And, and, and to lie is to sin. It's to separate yourself from the nature of God. And then you recontextualize that to us, and you go, don't lie. Right? And so there's not really much to it. It's just kind of like you read that verse, and you're like, yeah, I should do what that verse says. Right? It's not always that simple. You could then jump over to 1 Corinthians 8, where it talks about restrictions on Christians for eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. And if your first thought is to just copy and paste that literally into your life, you're going to go, sweet, I'm doing that one, 
I haven't eaten any food sacrificed to idols in like forever. I'm doing great. And you can just move on. But that's actually missing the teaching of the text. Because the teaching in 1 Corinthians is, is there's this context, right, where they're living in this pagan culture, and there was this common practice of taking the meat that was sacrificed to pagan gods and then selling it at a discounted price. And so people who are a little poorer, a little more thrifty, would buy meat sacrificed to idols, could let, it, let them get nicer cuts of meat than they could get otherwise. But what was happening is newly converted Christians in this pagan world were stepping into dinner and meals with their church family and eating, seeing their pastors, their spiritual leaders, their disciples eating meat that was used in pagan demonic worship, and they were going, whoa, you're eating demon meat. What, what, what is wrong with you? And it was breaking their faith, and it was causing problems. And so Paul steps in and says, listen, we know that idols aren't real. We know these things aren't anything. You can eat this meat with a clear conscience, but when you're with a, a brother who's less mature and you realize it's going to be a stumbling block for them, do not use your freedom to hurt them. So we can step back to this greater theological truth and go, man, Christ has bought us freedom. But our freedom is not to hurt and harm others. And that recontextualizes really beautifully in all sorts of circumstances. And you might say, for instance, man, in Christ, I feel the freedom to enjoy a gross IPA beer that tastes like weird orange juice. <laughs> you know it does. It's totally gross, and you just think you're cool for drinking it, but it's super gross. You might see your Christian freedom to do that, and then some of you are like, I'm leaving this church now. <laughs> you might see your Christian freedom to do that, but then realize that that's actually something that's really destructive for certain people, depending on their story, their family history, or where they are in their faith journey. And so your freedom should never be something that's destructive to a brother or sister. And so in their presence, you would choose to abstain. Does that make sense? We do this work all the time. And we're going to do this work here. And the reason I call it out is because this text is easy to look at point by point. Let's talk about marriage. Let's talk about parenting. Let's talk about slavery. <laughs> That's what it's talking about. That's a dangerous way to approach this text. And we're going to see that in a minute. Because this is one command. But what we see here is what's called a household code. This is an ethical structure that existed. It was commonplace in Paul's day. We actually have a lot of secular household codes that were preserved from various political and philosophical leaders in the Roman world during this day. It's really one commandment. And what we'll be tempted to do is to take the part that's kind of culturally distasteful for us, the section on slavery, and there we'll be really diligent to do our three islands work and to pull out the contextual theological truths and go, oh, okay, okay, okay. But in the beginning part where it's talking about marriage and parenting, we'll go, sweet, we can copy and paste that part. And maybe we will land in that place, but it's dangerous to just assume you should do that because we really have to look at this thing as one unit. And I really think that'll be actually be fruitful for us. I'm, I'm, if you're like less into theology and this whole piece has just been a little too heady for you, I'm sorry. Like that, but I just, I'd encourage you to be in this with me for a minute because this really is, this really is something that's a little hairy. And texts like this one have actually been used in atrocious and destructive ways in our history as a church. 
And so we do need to, we do need to bear soberly the responsibility of parsing texts like this that have a lot of historical significance. Does that make sense? So, we, we know what we're doing with this in terms of, in terms of um, what, what our interpretive method is, right? And, and we know this, this, this whole piece, this household code, is actually really important. It's important in the original context because Rome was a society that was built around the, like the, the building block of the family. In Roman culture, the family was the basic building block of society. And we actually see that working out in New Testament language a ton. The way they understood the, the basic family unit became kind of the thing that extrapolated out into social and religious and government practices. In fact, the New Testament church was modeled around this kind of first century family unit. We get the term elder, elder pastor, from the structure of the Roman family. That's actually, that's where, where we der derive that term, right? So, so this stuff is important and it's connected. So what was a family in first century Roman culture in a city like Colossae? It's important to talk about this piece before we get into it because it's very different than how we understand family. See, America, our culture is really built, even though it's funny because you hear like on the news all day long about how we're destroying the family, but really our cultural conception of the family comes back to this idea of the nuclear family, right? A husband and a wife are two spouses and they're 2.5 kids and they're a nice little house with their white picket fence and they're 0.5 acres and that's their deal. And the husband leaves to work and maybe the mom works, but she probably stays home and there's this, you, you know what I'm saying, right? Like we have this, this cultural concept of this idealized nuclear family. That's not what really exists in the Roman world. They live in much larger extended families. So you think about your family unit, right? If you have living siblings or you have adult children or you have living parents, you most likely all kind of live spread out in different houses, different neighborhoods, maybe different states. That would not have been normative in this day. You all would have packed together. And whoever the oldest male in the home is, they would be the head of the household. And that was actually a legal, like a legal position. So really quick, if you're in this space and you're maybe in your 20s or 30s and you're married and your dad's still alive, in this context, he would be the head of your household still. Even though you're married and you have some authority and you're making decisions, wives in the room, can you imagine really quick if your father-in-law was the head of your household? Let's uh, just stop and reflect on how, how, how blessed we are to live in this. Anyway, uh, <laughs> some of you are like, hey. <laughs> but, but, but this is important, right? You have this larger extended family unit all living together, and whoever the patriarch is, is the legal head of the household, and they actually have legal responsibility over their spouse, over their adult children, over their children-in-law, over their grandchildren, over their great-grandchildren, and yes, over their servants and slaves. Slavery in this world is different than how we understand slavery. We're, we're going to have to talk about that for a couple of minutes. But before we get there, we've got to talk about this reality of the household in this day. It's, it's just a little different than how we understand household. Are we good? 
So let's get to the elephant in the room. Why did we just read a passage from the scripture about human slavery and it did not command Christian slaveholders to free their slaves? That's a pretty big question. And it's one we have to reckon with. This is, this is a part of our history as a church. And beloved, we, listen, we can't ignore this piece. This is our history culturally, and this is our history in our faith. And we have a text in our, in our scripture, multiple texts, by the way, where ethical structures are given for human slavery without outright telling masters to free their slaves. That's pretty intense. In fact, this is one of the go-to verses in the modern atheistic movement to dismiss the ethical grounds of the scripture. How can you possibly say, how can you possibly say that this book teaches the best way to live and teaches actual love and actual good human flourishing-based ethics when it allows for human slavery? That's a real thing. And we got to deal with that. So let's talk about that for a few minutes. I'm sorry, guys. There's a lot to get through, but I think this will, this will get us to where we're going in this text in a really cool way. So the first thing we have to acknowledge really quick, and, and I want to be careful to parse through this, guys, is that there is no way, there is no way biblically, ethically, or from a Christian perspective to justify human slavery, period. There's not. It's evil. It's an atrocity. And we can say confidently and bluntly that God hates slavery. It is not of his character. It will not endure into eternity. It will not be something that we experience or see in heaven. You would have a really hard time looking at the narrative structure of the Bible and finding any justification for human slavery. The main narrative thrust of the entire Old Testament is God's detesting human slavery and freeing his people from evil, oppressive slavery. <laughs> the entire thrust of the New Testament is that Jesus appeared on earth to free his people from the bonds of death and sin, the slavery of the curse. Freedom in Christ, freedom in God, is the siren cry of the Bible. It's hard to get away from it. God detests slavery. And yet, it definitely exists. And it has existed since the curse has existed. And it existed in a way in the Roman world, in a unique way that we need to understand to really be able to wrap our head around this text. So I'm, I'm going to describe some of the aspects that make Roman slavery unique. And this, please hear me say this, this is not in any way me justifying these actions. I think it's important for us to understand them. So, Rome was a slave culture. At any given time, 30 to 40% of the entire Roman Empire was made up of slaves. That's pretty intense. That's anywhere between, right? That's like a quarter to a third of the entire population were slaves at any given time. So when Paul and the, the New Testament church speaks into Roman society, they don't call for the total 
abolishment of slavery. They don't. And we can say that as a criticism if we'd like, but I think it's actually really in line with the way we see God interjecting the gospel into the cursed and broken world throughout the totality of Scripture. There are times when in Scripture God injects His truth really bluntly and really counterculturally. You shall not commit adultery, period, boom, black and white. He speaks that objectively over and against the cultures where he was speaking into it. But what we find more often is that God speaks into the existing cultures by setting up ethical and life structures that undercut the foundation of those institutions. And you see that, where rather than calling for the abolishment of slavery, God so undercuts the very foundations of slavery as an institution that, that he calls Christians through holy living to live in such an insanely counterintuitive and countercultural way that it makes the institution appear ludicrous. He does that throughout Scripture, but we see that really vividly in the New Testament treatment of slavery. Now, Roman slavery is distinctly different than American slavery, than our experience in our nation's history. Nothing about it was racially motivated. There was no slavery by race. There was a lot of racism in that day, but there was no slavery by racism. There were essentially two kinds of slaves in the Roman world. There were war slaves, which represented pretty much 100% of those who were forcibly enslaved. And then there are bond servants or essentially poverty slaves. And so war slavery in the time of the Roman Empire was honestly considered a humanitarian effort. If the army came in and conquered a rebellious area or rebellious city, rather than slaughtering and murdering whoever surrendered, they would instead enslave them and send them throughout uh, the empire and to, to live out the rest of their lives. And poverty-based slavery was essentially their version of a social economic safety net. If you got too caught up in debt, and by the way, in the Roman Empire, there was generational debt, so if your parents died in massive debt, you inherited every penny they owed, right? If you got caught up in massive amounts of debt, you could sell yourself into slavery for the purpose of working off your debt. So the majority, not all, but the majority of slaves in the Roman Empire were included in the household dynamic. They lived in the home with the family. They had normal jobs. They married and had kids. They had salaries, and they could earn up, uh, save up their money to buy their freedom if they so desired. The majority of slaves, not all. There were especially amongst war slaves, there were some pretty horrific and awful things that were done uh, through galley slavery or mining slavery or things like that. But for the most part, what Paul is referencing here are these household slaves who are living what in the Roman Empire was the equivalent of a lower class life, right? Now, it's important to note that we're not saying that slavery in the Roman Empire was just fine. It was awful. They were slaves. They were property. They had no control over their own body, no autonomy. And if you spend any time reading about or learning about sexual ethics in the Roman Empire, you'll find that essentially every slave was sexually mistreated or abused. It was culturally normative. It's an atrocious thing. 
We're, we're not in any way justifying it. But we do have to understand that in the Roman culture, it was actually considered a foundation to their society, something important. So these, these household codes existed. They existed in the day. We have examples of them that are preserved, where they speak into marriage dynamics and parenting dynamics and slave dynamics, which essentially, by the way, comes out to work dynamics. You have to remember that the majority of people in the Roman Empire are either subsistence farmers or they run some kind of family business out of their home. So when, when talking about the work dynamics of bond servants, it's also including in that the work dynamics of children submitting to the father who would be the head of the home and the head of the business. It's speaking into family dynamics and work dynamics. These ethical structures existed and they're important. And in the Bible, we get a couple examples of a Christian household code that essentially speaks very directly over and against the existing secular household codes. Does that make sense? Really quick, before, I'm gonna jump into this. Uh, I, wanna, I wanna stay with our time. I just, I wanna mention this really quick uh, re regarding slavery and I think it's important. You know, it's February 16th, right? We're in the middle of Black History Month, and I'm just going to say this. As, as an American Christian, you need to engage and know your history regarding your nation's atrocious history regarding slavery and regarding the church's actually really powerful and beautiful history regarding slavery. This is not the point of our text, but it's important, I think, for us, Red Tree, to hear this. The fact that there is such a thing such a thing as the black church in the United States is a miracle that proves the power and the immensity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that, that people who claim the name of Christ took these scriptures and used them, distorted them, and used them to abuse and further atrocious human bondage. And yet somehow, that population saw through the evil and the sin and saw the power and the saving work and the sufficiency of Jesus in the truth of these words is a testament, a testament to the power of the gospel, the testament to the love of Jesus, to work over and above the depths of human depravity. So you should know that stuff. It's, it's February. You should read. You should go get a book of poetry by Phyllis Wheatley, some of the earliest uh, American black Christian poetry, and it is beautiful. You should read a biography of George Leal. You should read Martin Luther King's letter from prison. You should do it. It should be part of how you understand your history as a church. Sorry, back to our text. So we get into our household code. First and foremost, he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is amazing. It's amazing because every single household cold that existed secularly started with the same commandment. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's how these things started. That's how you knew it was a household code. It was starting out by telling the wives to submit. Now, it's important to note in Roman culture, that word submit actually was a little, little different than maybe we, how, how we use the word. Uh, it has to do with this idea of willingly choosing to place yourself under authority. And that has to do with some nuances of Roman culture that we won't get into, but, but there, is, there is this, maybe this dignity in the way that the Roman culture used that word that's, that's a little different from how we tend to use the word. So wives, submit to yourselves to your husbands. And then in all the secular household codes, they would move on. 
But in the Christian household code, Paul says, and husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. I love this. I love this. In that world, the head of the household and the husband of the wife was the dictator. They had supreme power. They had the social standing. They had the political clout. They were the ruler of the home, and they were not given instructions. But Paul gives instructions. He starts off by speaking a language everyone understands. Wives, submit to your husbands. Oh, and husbands, love your wives. And the word there is agape. Love your wives like Jesus loves you. Love your wives unconditionally in a way that puts their benefit and their well-being and their soul over and above your well-being and your comfort and your good. And do not be harsh with them. Come on. That kind of love, and I promise I'm not trying to start a fight by saying this theologically, that kind of love looks a lot like submission putting the other above you, making a choice to say her benefit, her comfort, her well-being, her growth over and above mine. Which makes sense why Paul says things like, hey, in Christ, he's all and in all. There's no difference. There's no difference between, and, and, and really quick, I'm not your pastor's not up here dismissing the idea of roles and difference in gender, I promise. But there is this important note here in terms of the, the context of love and service in the marriage, where Paul is describing a uniquely Christian ethic of marriage that doesn't have to do with power dynamics and domination, but has to do with insane, mutual, sacrificial Jesus love. He's speaking something powerful into that world. Wives, absolutely choose to put yourself under the authority of your husband. Husbands, love your wives like Jesus loves you. That, that's a different kind of marriage than what existed in that day. That's a different kind of marriage than what exists today. (laughs) And then he goes on and he speaks to the kids. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I'll be quick here, but there's a couple things. First off, the kids are told to obey, not submit, which essentially is saying, you don't have a choice in this. They're your authority. (laughs) Second off, the the way he, I'm not going to get into this in the Greek, but the way he uses the language, he's putting a level of agency and humanity on children that didn't exist in that day. Uh, Children were less than human and they were considered property. But Paul speaks agency and dignity into the role of the child. And then immediately speaks to the fathers again, again. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And he says, listen, fathers, wield your authority over your children carefully. Come on. There's power in that. In in a culture where children are literally property, where if you don't like your newborn baby, you can carry them out and leave them at the trash, and the trash guy will come and get them. That's a thing in Roman culture. And Paul says, no, 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 wield your authority over your children excellently. 
Wield your authority carefully. And then he gets into the bondservant. And he has this, this beautiful image, again, about obedience. But he says, he says, obey them, like actually obey them. <laughs> From your heart, not with lip service, not doing things halfway, not disconnected. But, and he, he built this beautiful image where he says, he says, you know, you know who your real master is. You know who your real master is. So work for him. Work for him because you know that you have a real inheritance coming to you. See, one of the things that was so painful and hard about this household slave life in that day was that you might live a pretty, pretty comfortable, normative life in a home with a wealthy family, and, and you would be included in meals and included in celebrations and all these things, but when it came down to it, you were the slave, the servant, not a member of the family, and you had no part in the inheritance. It wasn't truly your family. But Paul says, you know who your true master is. And you know your true inheritance that's coming to you. So work with joy. Work, work fully. Work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men. And then he says this in verse 24. You are serving the Lord. Come on. Think about the way that spoke life and power and dignity into an oppressive, broken system. He says, slave, you have a true master and his name is Jesus. And you know, look back at verse 11. There is no difference between slave and free. You know that. You have a true master. And his inheritance for you is secure. His work on the cross is sufficient. So work for him. And then he says this piece that should be haunting. For the wrongdoer will be paid back. There is no partiality. You can endure the injustice and the indignity of your current position. Because you have a true master named Jesus and a true inheritance he has promised you. And he will bring justice to this world. And then he ends by talking to the master. Treat your servant justly and fairly. Hearing this, hear, hear this church. Knowing that you also have a master. Man. He looks at the one in authority. In every scenario, he, he, he speaks into this established family code, which essentially tells old men, hey, you're awesome. And he says, listen up, husband. Love your wife like Jesus loved you. Wield your authority with your children carefully and excellently. And those who are under you, who submit to you, treat them fairly because you are not the master. You have a master. This is the way the gospel speaks into the authority structures of a broken and sinful human world. It undermines them with the truth, the true structure, the true family order that is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is ordered like this. Christ, 
everything else. That is the family to which you have joined. Christ, everything else. He is the true master, the true head, the true loving husband, the true kind father, the true humble servant, the true just and kind master. He is above all. He is all and in all. Come on. This is the family ethic of the kingdom of God. And this is what we are called to participate in. See, what will happen is that passages like this, actually this specific passage, will be used. People will, uh, will come in and they'll say, oh, see, look, this is just speaking into the cultural norms of the day. None of that actually applies, so you don't have to worry about Christian ethics of family or sexuality or any of those things. You can set those aside because they were just cultural contextualizations. We need to really talk about what, what that means today, which is really just love and love and love. And, then that, and you could Google this passage, and you'll find people arguing just that. But man, that misses the beauty and the weight of what is here. The beauty and the weight of what is here is that you, beloved of Jesus, have been brought into a new family. And that new family is intense. And it's amazing. And it takes every single bit of you there is no such thing as compartmentalized Christianity. There is no such thing. You do not get the option to give Jesus sovereign reign over your heart and over your church life and not over your marriage and your parenting and your work. That does not exist. Christ is the Lord of all. Of all. Pastor Jeff was fond of giving this image of, of a, a chest of drawers, right? And he would say, what we love to do is we, we want to make sure that Jesus is our top drawer, that he's our number one priority, that as long as it's Jesus above work and family and, and desires and, and retirement and money and all those things were good, that is not the case. Jesus does not want to be number one in your life. Jesus wants your life everything. He's not your top drawer. He is the chest that you slide your drawers into. Come on. He is over and above all. Beloved, you, we're going to talk about calling. The call on your life is to give yourself fully to your master and the lover of your soul, Jesus. To give yourself fully and to allow the power and truth of the finished work of Jesus on the cross to worm its way into every inch, every nuance of your life. How you treat your spouse, how you steward your singleness, how you live in, in a dating relationship, how you engage your kids, how you engage your parents, how you work when authorities are over you, how you channel and take care of authorities under you, every single facet of your life in your home, in your work, in your interpersonal relationships belong to Jesus, the Lord of your soul. Every piece. There is no compartmentalized faith. Beloved, I would encourage you. I would encourage you. Stew in that truth. Sit in that. This 
is the thrust of this letter. This is the thing Paul's been talking about the whole time. Christ is sufficient. His work accomplished on the cross on your behalf is sufficient. That's a beautiful theological thing. It's easy for a pastor to say. It's easy for us to amen it and write it in the margins of our Bible and sing songs about how sufficient and awesome Jesus is. But beloved, that has teeth. That means something for your life. That means that you walk out of here and when you get in your car and you drive to lunch and you go home and you fold laundry and you get ready for work tomorrow and you deal with your coworkers and you sit in traffic and you get on the internet and you check your email and you watch TV and literally everything you do exists within the Lordship of Christ. And his work on the cross is sufficient to speak into every piece of your life. There is nothing that you will do for the rest of your days that is so insignificant that Christ doesn't care about it or doesn't have an opinion about it. There's nothing. As the psalm says, where can I go from your presence? Answer, nowhere. Every piece of your life. And beloved, this is where we're going to land. That doesn't have to be scary. See, for the psalmist, it was scary. What the heck is going on? Everywhere I go, if I'm, if I'm up high, if I'm down low, I can't get away from you. This is too intense. That doesn't have to be scary. That's scary when we want to hold on to the throne of our life in different areas. That's only scary when we realize Jesus sees our idols and sees our secret sins and sees the fiefdoms of authority that we try and hold on to in our career or in our finances or in our retirement or in our relationships or whatever the heck you want to fill the blank with. It's only scary when we don't want him to be the Lord of our life. But beloved, you are invited, invited to offer yourself up as a sacrifice, to give every piece of your life to the lover of your soul, to let him actually rule and reign and love and care for every facet of you. And that's not scary. That's wonderful. That's what your heart longs for. That's what you were built for. You were designed with this kind of love and intimacy and connection in mind. That's, that is exactly like the plugs and wires of your heart and soul. They line up perfectly with the lordship of Jesus because he built you and he designed you and he stamped his image in you. He has sustained you up to this point and he has a future in mind for you. I'm going to read this text. It's famous. And I'm going to ask you guys just to hear this, and then we'll give some space just to pray. Band, if you guys want to come back up. We're going to do what we always do. We're going to have some prayer counselors in the room. Who are my prayer counselors this week? Alexa and Matt. You guys will be around the room. Our pastors are obviously always available. But I want to encourage you guys to hear this text and just spend a few minutes with Jesus. Spend a few minutes confessionally with Jesus. 
where you, can we just, can we say it this way? Can we sit with Jesus and just state the obvious? Can we just confess the areas of our life that we don't want to submit to him? Because it's one of those things, right, where like, we kind of live as though that's somehow like secret, even though like you're sitting with Jesus and you're both looking at it and he's like, eh, eh. Can we just be honest? Confessional with our Lord. I want to encourage you guys with something. He has thick skin. He can hear your confession. He can handle it. He will not be surprised that you have idolatry in areas of sin and non-submission in your life. He will hear those confessions joyfully and kindly and gently. Because that's the kind of king he is. It's the kind of authority he is. So let me read for us. And we'll take a few minutes to do the work you need to do with Jesus. And then I'll pray for us and we'll continue. This is from Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Beloved, take a few minutes to be with Jesus and do the work you need to do.